0: Welcome to the D.C. Debrief for Friday, December 15th, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolness. And coming up, Zelensky visits Washington. Is the Ukraine deal coming? Hunter Biden hits Capitol Hill. Biden impeachment inquiry moves forward. And we'll take a closer look at a potential Trump second term with White House correspondent Abigail Robertson and the Fed's interest rate decision with Mark Hamrick from Bankrate. All of that coming up on this week's edition of the D.C. Debrief. But A gentle reminder, everyone, that as you're gathering together with your friends and family here over the Christmas holidays, If you're finding yourselves talking about what's been going on in Washington, D.C., let them know that this is the place that they can come to for the best recap of everything that happened that week in the nation's capital, and I'm going to give you the news, I'm going to give you the information, I'm going to give you the newsmakers, and then you guys decide what to do with that information. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcasts. All right, everybody, let's get to the debrief for this week. Zelensky in D.C., foreign aid bill with the clock ticking down to Congress recessing. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited Washington this week with an urgent plea for money to help fend off Russian aggression. Zelensky's day began with a trip to Capitol Hill, lobbying senators to move forward with a funding package to help his country in their two year old war with Russia. Following the meeting, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer warns if Congress doesn't come through.
1: It will be a historic, colossal tragedy.
0: Republican Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says aiding Ukraine is important, but doesn't see how it's possible for Congress to come to a deal before the House leaves for a three week December break.
2: Practically impossible, even though we reach an agreement to craft it, get it through the Senate, get it through the House before Christmas. That doesn't mean it's not important.
0: Some Republicans in the Senate and House are adamant that funding for Ukraine be tied to additional resources and harsher immigration laws being put into place along the southern US border. House Speaker Mike Johnson also met with Zelensky, and he says he's waiting for the White House and Democrats to address
2: their demands. We needed clarity on what we're doing in Ukraine and how we'll have proper oversight of the spending of precious taxpayer dollars in the American citizens. And we needed a transformative change at the border thus far. We've got neither.
0: Later, Zelensky visited President Biden at the White House, speaking to reporters after Zelensky once again framed their war with Russia as a war that the whole world needs to win.
3: Ukraine can now tackle the Russian dictatorship. So our children and other nations one half have to shed their blood.
0: President Biden calling out Republicans who he says will be on the wrong side of history if they don't help Ukraine.
3: If you're being celebrated by Russian propagandists, it might be time to rethink what you're doing. History history will judge harshly those who turn their
2: back on freedom's cause.
0: Now, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer did announce on Thursday that the Senate will remain in session next week in the hopes of reaching a deal with Republicans regarding funding for Ukraine and that they're going to hold a vote on an aid package next week, whether or not they have a deal in place so that it's it's not contingent upon a border deal being reached, but it certainly is less likely that uh, it will pass the Senate if they're not able to get some kind of a border deal. And even if it, if it does pass the Senate, it's a no-go in the House without a border deal. It may, go, it may be a no-go in the House, even if it has a border deal that the Senate agrees to. But the prospect of an agreement became more likely this week as the White House became more open to compromising on border policies. So we will see how this all shakes out next week, the week before Christmas. Hunter on Capitol Hill on the day he was called for a closed door deposition with House Oversight Committee lawmakers. President Biden's son Hunter arrived on Capitol Hill to make a statement to reporters. CBN's Hillary Powell has the details.
4: House Oversight Chair James Comer says he is already initiating contempt of Congress proceedings against Hunter Biden, saying he defied a lawful subpoena. Biden spoke out against the request for closed-door testimony as lawmakers prep an impeachment investigation into President Biden.
3: They have taken the light of my dad's love, the light of my dad's love for me, and presented it as darkness. They have no shame.
4: In his first public statement since two criminal indictments, Hunter Biden made a statement on Capitol Hill slamming House Republicans for targeting his father. Republicans are seeking to tie President Joe Biden to his son Hunter's business dealings as part of an impeachment inquiry, which Hunter rejects.
3: And In the depths of my addiction, I was extremely irresponsible with my finances. But to suggest that is grounds for an impeachment inquiry is beyond the absurd. It's shameless. There is no evidence to support the allegations that my father was financially involved in my business because it did not happen.
4: House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer swiftly issued a joint statement with House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan saying, quote, we will not provide special treatment because his last name is Biden. Last month, Comer subpoenaed Hunter to sit for a closed door deposition as part of the committee's impeachment probe. Hunter says he's only willing to
5: testify in public. This is an investigation of Joe Biden. Hunter Biden's a key witness because we we have a simple question and the majority of Americans have a question. What did the Bidens do to receive tens of millions of dollars from our enemies around the world?
4: Democrats see the impeachment inquiry as unnecessary.
3: They have not laid a glove on President Biden and they have no evidence of him com- committing any offense, much less an impeachable uh, offense.
4: Hunter says his lifelong struggle with alcoholism and drug abuse
3: shouldn't be pulled into the investigation. They've belittled my recovery, And they have tried to dehumanize me all to embarrass and damage my father. Who has devoted his entire public life
1: to service.
4: Okay. separately, Hunter, Biden faces criminal charges in two states following a special counsel investigation. Now, holding an individual in criminal contempt of Congress for evading a subpoena requires both the oversight and judiciary committees to meet again and to vote on the contempt resolution before it could even go to the House floor. And that likely will not happen until after the Christmas holiday.
0: That same day, House Republicans voted to officially begin an impeachment inquiry into President Biden.
3: CBN's Capitol Hill correspondent Matt Galka with more on that. The House Rules Committee debated a resolution authorizing a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden.
1: We are here to determine a process, not an outcome. We are here to assert our Article One responsibilities, not to act as judge or jury. And we are here fundamentally to chart a path forward that unveils the facts to the public.
3: Biden's son Hunter remains at the center of the probe, including what role his father may have played in his business dealings and whether or not it impacted U.S. foreign policy. To Democrats, it adds up to revenge on behalf of former President Donald Trump and an attempt to smear the current administration.
1: All of this is happening because House Republican leaders refuse to abide by the election results. They're upset Trump uh, lost. He's upset he lost. Some of them still don't even believe he lost. Many of them are upset that the insurrection didn't succeed on January 6th. And today, they want to finish the job.
3: A vote approving the formal inquiry can help Republicans enforce subpoenas and gain access to documents related to Biden and his family. The National Archives is set to release 62,000 additional documents related to Republican requests, including emails between Biden and his son sent using aliases. House Speaker Mike Johnson backs the formal inquiry.
2: We have no choice to fulfill our constitutional responsibility. We have to take the next step. We're not making a political decision. It's not, it's a legal decision. So people have feelings about it one way or the other. We can't prejudge the outcome. The constitution does not permit us to do so. We have to follow the truth where it takes us. And that is exactly what we're gonna do.
3: Johnson had previously been critical of the Democrats' pursuit of impeachment of the former president.
2: I know that that, that people are, um, You know, frustrated sometimes with the the time that's being invested in this, but this is the way the founders anticipated that something like this would go. There's, There's no there shouldn't be any such thing as a snap impeachment, a sham impeachment like the Democrats did against President Trump. Trump
0: objection to Supreme Court, the special prosecutor in the Trump election subversion case, Jack Smith, is asking the Supreme Court to rule quickly on Donald Trump's claim that he is immune from prosecution for his role in trying to overturn the 2020 elections. Smith is asking the justices to rule now instead of having the case go through the lower courts, a process that could take months or even more than a year. President Trump's lawyers have argued that the case should be thrown out because as president, he has presidential immunity and that everything that he was doing in the weeks and months leading up to what happened on January 6th was part of his duties as president of the United States. If that had been allowed to go forward through the courts. It could have taken everyone through 2024 and well into 2025. At a rally in Iowa this week, Trump railed against Smith's legal filing.
5: But they waited and waited and waited and then they saw I was running and they waited and then they saw I was hot and they filed lawsuits. These are very dishonest people. That's called election interference. These are very. And now they're fighting like hell because they want to try and get a guilty plea. From the Supreme Court of the United States, which I can't imagine because you have presidential immunity, but strange things happen. But they want to get that because that's the only way they're going to win the election.
0: Those in the special prosecutor's office believe Trump wants to delay the trial until after the 2024 elections. The justices said they will take up the case soon, but have not indicated when yet. Supreme Court abortion pill, speaking of the Supreme Court, they announced this week they will take up a case in the next term, potentially in July over whether the most popular abortion drug on the market, mifepristone, should be restricted nationwide. Now that ruling could restrict the medication even in states that allow abortion. Lower courts have put restrictions on the sale of mifepristone. However, the high court said those restrictions will go away, will, will be held off until they have ruled on the issue. The Biden administration and a manufacturer of the drug are asking the justices to reverse a lower court, a federal appeals court decision that if it was allowed to go into effect, would restrict access to the drug. At the same time, some groups and doctors that oppose abortion want the justices to go even further than the Federal Appeals Court did, and they want to actually have the FDA approval of the drug, which went into place in 2000, removed perceptions of the U.S. military. As the U.S. military continues to fall short of meeting their goals for enlistment, and despite offering higher pay and larger bonuses, lawmakers on Capitol Hill are trying to figure out why the military is experiencing one of its worst recruiting shortfalls in half a century. National security correspondent Caitlin Burke has more on that.
6: In fiscal year 2023, the military branches collectively missed their recruiting goals by approximately 41,000 recruits. Wednesday, representatives from each testified about the underlying causes behind the shortfall.
3: 30 years ago when I was in high school, uh, 40% of youth had a parent that served. But today that number is under 13%.
6: While witnesses outlined challenges ranging from getting recruiters into schools during COVID to a decrease in eligibility, Republicans zeroed in on polling that suggests the problem is because the military has become, quote, the administration's next social justice project.
1: This poll, which we can all read, found that 73 percent of veterans believe that the U.S. military has become too political regarding race, gender and sexuality. Even worse, a quarter of the veterans would tell a young person not to enlist.
5: We're now at the third time having this conversation about recruiting, and rather than actually listening to the
4: genuine,
6: genuine experts here who are saying it's complicated, because indeed it is
5: complicated, we are still marching out these kinds of Breitbart, you know, uh, the Providence Unknown uh, questionnaires.
3: When cadets, military families, active duty members, stop bringing
7: us these issues, then we'll maybe then we'll stop talking about it. But as long as they are, we have a we have a duty to to uh, to
5: address these issues.
6: Only two military branches met their active duty enlisted recruiting goals for 2023, the Marine Corps and the Space Force. Alex Wagner, Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Manpower and Reserve Affairs, credits the success to a pilot program waiving previous requirements on body composition, tattoo placement, and THC use.
3: These and other efforts result in approximately 2,900 new enlisted accessions in FY23. That's 2,900 high-quality individuals with a propensity to serve that would have otherwise been excluded.
6: All branches admit it's critical to find ways to persuade Gen Z to take an interest in military service. That's because as one of the most tech-savvy generations, their skill sets will likely be key to future military readiness. Caitlin Burke, CBN News, Washington.
0: NDAA passage, the House, passed the annual defense authorization bill on Thursday, an $886 billion policy and funding package for the Pentagon. It will now go to President Biden's desk for his signature. It passed 310 to 118, so a bipartisan measure. 45 Democrats and 73 Republicans opposed the measure. Now, the House and the Senate released a compromise version of it last week, and in that co- in that compromise version, it stripped out a ban on the DoD's abortion policy, as well as a prohibition on the Pentagon to fund gender affirming care, along with other contentious provisions. That's what Republicans were opposed to. Conservative lawmakers also opposed the inclusion of the NDAA of an extension of Section 702. That's the foreign intelligence surveil of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act (FISA), uh, and that will uh, run through April 19th. Uh, Republican Congressman Bob Good, who was against who was against the FISA extension, said that surveillance of U.S. citizens trampling on our most precious constitutional freedoms in this country with no reforms. Um, the FD, the NDAA is a bad bill. Attaching it to FISA makes it that much worse. Every Republican should vote against it. Of course, not every Republican voted against it. Now, this did include supplemental aid money to Israel, but did not include money for Ukraine. As we mentioned earlier in the podcast, that is being argued along a separate track, coexisting with uh, a border security compromise. And again, we'll see how that all shakes out. But the rest of the Pentagon funding bill uh, passes the House. And now we'll head to the president's desk. 2024 latest, Donald Trump continues to lead the Republican primary by a wide margin with the Iowa caucus and New Hampshire primary just a month away. And now there are calls by many inside the Republican party for the RNC and everyone else to coalesce around the former president. CBN News chief political analyst David Brody has more on that strategy.
1: Normally, a presidential primary is full of high drama. Donald Trump's huge poll numbers, however, has changed that dynamic. Former Trump administration official Mark Lauder sums it up.
7: Yeah, this is really the first time in history where we do not have a hypothetical campaign going on.
1: With Trump seemingly untouchable, it has certain Republicans calling on the RNC, the Republican National Committee, to embrace the former president, and focus party resources on a general election matchup against President Biden. The message seems to be getting through as the RNC isn't officially hosting any more debates. While Ron DeSantis has received backing from leading Iowa Evangelical Leader Bob Vander Plaats and Governor Kim Reynolds, Trump remains dominant. Nikki Haley received the coveted support of the powerful Koch political network, plus New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu's endorsement just this week. So far, nothing has seemed to weaken Trump's standing among primary voters.
7: In the day and age of constant information, instant information at the flip of your phone to anything you want to know about every candidate, we don't need third party endorsers
1: that dynamic combined with the trump factor leaves a dwindling gop field struggling to gain traction while abc news political director rick klein acknowledges this weakness he's not yet ready to call the race
3: and you don't really know until the last couple of plays of the game how it's going to what's going to happen and if someone surprises in iowa and or new hampshire the the first two states to vote it's a totally different uh, contest.
1: What's also different is that while Trump hasn't debated at all, his poll numbers keep climbing. Could that change when voting begins?
3: It's a good 2023 strategy for Donald Trump, but is it a 2024 strategy? When we're in it, when voters are dialed in truly to the reality of the race six weeks from now, does he still not not engage?
1: Whatever happens, Trump's unconventional strategy of not engaging will be one studied for decades to come. David Brody, CBN News, Washington.
0: By the way, a new Associated Press NORC poll that came out this Thursday showed a majority of Americans are unsatisfied with both President Biden and former President Trump as the nominees. The poll showed that more than half of the country is unhappy with their current options. 56 percent said they'd be somewhat or very dissatisfied if Biden becomes the Democratic nominee. 58% 58% said the same if Trump becomes the nominee. Now, this comes as a new Bloomberg News Morning Consult poll found that if the election were held today, Trump would beat Biden in seven swing states. Trump's victories would come in Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, all within the margin of error. But he, he had a much larger leads in Georgia and North Carolina. So some... This just echoes some previous polling that we've seen in some of these swing states in a general election. Of course, lots can happen between now and then. All right, everybody, that's your debrief, and now let's get into our deep dives for this week. primary season starts to wind down maybe even before the Iowa caucuses, New Hampshire primaries are set to begin in January. We're already seeing the Republican field winnowing down to a handful of candidates right now. But of course, still at the very tippy top is Donald Trump with a big lead on his rivals, both in Iowa and New Hampshire, at least if you believe the the polling that's out there right now. And it's starting to feel like we are set up for another Biden versus Trump election here in 2024. So joining me to talk about a story that she did this week, looking at what Donald Trump has said are going to be some of the policy initiatives and priorities of a second Trump administration, if there is one, is our White House correspondent, Abigail Robertson. Abigail, thanks for coming back on the D.C. Debrief. How are you?
5: Great. Thank you for having me, John.
0: It's great to talk to you. And we've been focusing a lot of our attention, obviously, on Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, and the rest of the Republican field, really because they were kind of new to the national politics scene, a lot of them. we, Those of us who are in D.C., we know who Tim Scott is. And obviously, the country knows who Mike Pence is. Some of these guys have more name recognition than others. But it's been fascinating learning about these new people. But despite all of that, despite the debates, despite the media coverage, Donald Trump, is still way far ahead of all these other candidates. And so it's... A good thing that we're starting to look and see what is he saying on the campaign trail in terms of what he wants his second term to look like. So as you approached this story and you were digging into some of the things that he has said, the talking points on the campaign trail, the the things he is saying in his rallies, what stuck out to you as maybe his number one priority for a second administration? Has he been that clear as far as what he would want his number one thing to be?
5: Well, John, you make a good point because this go round where, as we saw in 2016, um, you know, the amount of just free advertising Trump had for his campaign because everything he was saying was so shocking. Every network he was there, his campaign was dominating every network all the time. And this go round. What the headlines about Trump are mainly when he's in court or there's something involving one of his court cases and media, the media isn't really picking up his campaign events and his stump speeches. And we're not seeing him in those GOP primary debates touting his platform. So I think a lot of um, the public hasn't isn't really paying attention right now to what Trump is saying about what he would do in a second term as president. When, as you said, it's looking Rather likely right now, even though voters have not gone to the polls yet and will do so at the start of the new year, that he's going to run away with the GOP primary. And what we're hearing while Trump is on the campaign trail I think one of the the dominating things that he's talking about is political payback. He's mentioned a lot about investigating President Joe Biden and his family. And he said, you know, that's what he's been through the past couple of years. So you sort of reap what you sow. And that's, I think, top of mind as far as his plans. But then a lot of his platform, um, you know, I, I spoke with our Chief political analyst David Brody yesterday, who described it as very patriotic. And when you look at President Trump's campaign website, we sort of in 2016 that was a big theme of his campaign, and he's taking it even a step further. I think, especially you know since 2016, he's really playing on the anti woke. I think that would be a great way to describe his agenda. He's going after um, schools, for example, and really trying to stand up for conservative parents who are frustrated by the public school system. He's going after public universities. He wants to, one of his ideas is to tax the endowments of these universities like Harvard, where they have. Billions of dollars worth of endowments, and he wants to tax them to make the American Academy, um, which would be this college for or a kind of a alternative to college for um, a very pro America university. So he has ideas such as that, um, and yeah, and and that he describes it on his website: bold ambitions, big ideas daring dreams. And as you scroll through, you will really see that this idea of patriotism and pro-America hmm.
0: One of the things that has caught the attention of his critics, Democrats, especially the president, uh, where some comments that he made with Sean Hannity uh, last week. Mm-hmm. And I know you mentioned this in your story a little bit, too, um, during a town hall where uh, Sean Hannity asks him, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? Because responding to some of the criticism on the left that when Trump comes into power, he will act like a dictator. And he said, no, no, other than day one. We're closing the border, and we're drilling, drilling, drilling. After that, I'm not a dictator. What did you take that to mean? Like, what is he trying to say when when he talks about being a dictator on day one and focusing on the border and drilling, drilling, drilling?
5: Yes. So this was a line from that town hall that made all sorts of headlines about Trump as you know says he's going to be a dictator day one. Um, And I went back and I watched it and watched it over and over again. And what, so Sean Hannity phrased the question two ways. And what he was trying to get at is, will Trump use the DOJ to go after political enemies? And he kept asking Trump, you know, is he going to abuse the power of the presidency to go after people that he does not like? And Trump sort of, he didn't directly answer the question at either time mm. and instead he answered it by saying um, you know i'm no 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 i'm not going to be a dictator other than day one but both times instead of answering the question about is he going to use the department of justice and other um things at his disposal to go after his political enemies. He just kept talking about the border and drilling and, ha- and it is common for presidents on day one to sign a bunch of executive orders. Yeah. Um, but he de- he doesn't directly answer Sean's question about going after his political enemies and and if he potentially would abuse the office of the presidency to do so.
0: What about his plans for immigration? Is he looking to return to some of the policies that we saw during his first term in office?
5: Yes. So I think that's one of the things he would do day one is reverse sort of all the policies that President Biden <laughs> refers when he got in office of Trump's. Um, and But he's also taking his immigra- immigration policies a step further. He's touting ending birthright citizenship for babies born in the United States. This was something that he talked about in his when he as president the first term and it's something he's really touting on the campaign trail as a priority for something he wants to do if he is back in office Um, there's other things he he wants to wage war on the drug cartels he thinks it's time to deputize the national guard and he said in cooperative states he really wants to put the national guard to work to really um, you know go to war, attacking the gang members who are bringing in, um, you know, we have a fentanyl crisis in the United States and he wants to empower them to be able to do more, to really crack down on these gang members, criminals coming across the border. Um, He also, he was very inspired by the Sound of Freedom movie that came out this summer. He hosted screenings with the actors involved and the people involved behind the real life story. And that has led him to call for human traffickers to receive the death penalty. So he um, wants to go back to a lot of his, the policies he put in place in 2016. The border, again, is going to be a huge priority. He wants to keep building the wall and he wants to add to it and go further to really um, what he, what he said, shut in quote, shut down Biden's border disaster
0: one of the other things that's been talked about is that as he if he has a, a second term at the start of his first term he brought in a lot of people who, Maybe had a more traditional conservative approach to policy, whether it's domestic or or foreign, and uh, this time around, the priority will be for him to bring in loyalists into his into his White House, so uh, people who may be more in step with what what his vision is uh, for a, a second term. does that sound like what you've been hearing as well?
5: so this is the part of my story that I really want to dive into further, um, that in this, the particular piece I worked on this week, I didn't really get into, but it's something that I am very intrigued by, is who is he going to fill his cabinet with? Um, at the end of his last term, particularly after January 6th, when we saw mass resignation from a lot of his senior staff, his cabinet officials, There, a lot of the people who had stayed with him through his presidency we no longer around him anymore. They they left him right before the very end. Um, and we saw massive turnover throughout throughout the four years as president. So I am incredibly curious who he would surround himself with this next go around. And politics are a very funny business. Um, there are many people who can, right now, might be Republicans who are endorsing his opponents, saying that there needs to be a new leader. But if it becomes Trump, as the candidate, we might see a lot of those people change their tune Mm -hmm. and and once again kind of buddy up with him to potentially be in one of those cabinet positions. So I I think it's going to be very interesting to see who he surrounds himself with. And I think it's even going to be more interesting who he picks as his vice president. Is he going to pick somebody who is seen as a more establishment Republican to bridge that gap because the reality is this was something I asked David about the never trumpers within the Republican party has only grown they were there in 2016 they were there in 2020 but it's they that number has only grown when i asked david about this he sort of said it's still such a small number he doesn't think it would be problematic in the general election but our elections are very close in the states in 2020 the the key states, the there were it was a very close margin with those votes. Every vote matters. Trump's gonna need independence. He's gonna need every Republican vote he can get. So even if it's a small major or small number of never Trumpers, he's gonna need to try and win them over and mm-hmm. get their backing, get their support. So it's gonna be interesting to see if he picks someone as his VP who has sort of stuck with him and is even campaigning with him now. He kinda he has a, a crew that travels around with him that is deeply loyal to him. Definitely people who are auditioning for the role of VP or if he's gonna go with somebody who might sort of bring more peace of mind to people who say, I cannot vote for Trump a third time or maybe didn't even vote for him the first two times. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it'll be it'll be a fascinating run up if if Trump is able to continue on uh, with the leads that he has in some of these early states, and uh, he he really is acting as if he's an incumbent president uh, almost. It's almost like two incumbent presidents here uh, vying for the the nominations a- at the moment. I know you talked to Inside Elections editor Nathan Gonzalez. He's a friend of the podcast. We had him on last week talking about. Um, Just making sure that we're paying attention to the things that Donald Trump is saying on the campaign trail as well as everyone else. I mean, that's, you know, I think, I think, Abby, people maybe just kind of got have gotten a little bit used to the things that Donald Trump says on the campaign trail that other candidates, it might really shock you if they said it. And so his, his admi- not admonition, but his recommendation to listen to what Donald Trump and everyone else is saying on the campaign trail um, is, is important as we are getting ready to make a pretty important decision here in the next few months. So uh, folks, make sure that you check out Abby's story. It's over at cbnnews.com. And of course you can see her covering the White House for us on the 700 Club and Faith Nation. Abby, thank you for joining me on the D.C. Debrief. I really appreciate it.
5: Thanks for having me. Some interesting and seemingly
0: positive economic news coming down the pike this week that we wanted to make sure to talk about. And joining me to do that is Washington Bureau Chief for Bankrate Mark Hamrick, good friend of the podcast. Uh, You see him on Faith Nation all the time. So, uh, Mark, welcome back to the D.C.
7: Debrief. How are you? Great to be with you. I'm doing well. I hope you are and get the sense you are as well, John. Thank you. (laughs)
0: Well, if I'm not, I fake it anyway. So that's good. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I I think that um, I was surprised this week when seeing some of the uh, financial data come down. We had some inflation numbers come down this week. We had some retail sale numbers come down this week, which I want to get into in a second. But uh, very interesting comments by the Fed chair on Thursday, on on Wednesday, pardon me, uh, Mm -hmm. talking about the fact that they're going to leave interest rates where they are for the rest of the year. And looking ahead to next year, we're looking at rate cuts uh, for next year. So Seemingly, this is if I'm reading between the tea leaves, Mark, but I want you to make sure that I'm reading this correctly. They're more bullish on the state of the economy now over the next 12 months. Is that your sense as well?
7: I think that's a fair way to characterize it. Uh, Let's sort of back up just a little bit and, and talk a little bit about where we've been and how we might have gotten to where we think we might be, leaving aside where we might be going. So, you know, looking at, let's say, some of my social media timelines, it's increasingly shocking to me that we're talking about right now being in sort of a four year anniversary of the time before we knew the pandemic was going to make such a Mm -hmm. serious dent. Uh, in our lives and taking the lives of many people and and all the economic implications of that. And so it's been quite the journey to say the least and many things that happened that we couldn't really have predicted. Uh, And part of that was historically high inflation. And what resulted was the federal reserve response, raising interest rates by the most in a generation. And here we are in the Christmas season, kind of looking back from an economic analysis standpoint and kind of scratching our heads and saying, it's amazing that the economy has remained as resilient as it has. And as you and I speak, the stock market is... Off to the races with a 20% plus gain this year, putting the Dow Industrials average at a new record high, the unemployment rate at 3.7%, much lower than would have been expected when you have the federal funds rate, the benchmark interest rate set by the Fed as high as it is. The fact that we had a mini banking crisis earlier this year. And so, you know, it's just been a much more um, uh, positive outcome. For this moment in time, leaving aside that we don't know what happens tomorrow. Uh, and so the Fed had to acknowledge that. you know It had to acknowledge that in- inflation has come down much more substantially than it and pretty much everybody else expected, that the job market is in a better place from any number of different perspectives, better balance, as Fed Chairman Powell likes to say. So if we didn't Give thanks over the Thanksgiving season. Uh, maybe it's a <laughs> time to say our prayers here uh, for additional reasons over the holiday and Christmas seasons.
0: How, how do you explain that the, the economy was able to, to navigate these waters? Because you mentioned a number of headwinds really since the pandemic and, and and the inflation numbers that were so high a year ago that they have come down. But still, pr- things cost more now than they, they did a year ago, and people are still feeling that. So uh, there was a lot of talk at the beginning of the year about a possible recession. It certainly seems as if we have avoided that fate. I don't know that for sure. You would know that better than than I would. But how how did we manage to avoid a catastrophe?
7: Well, you know, I think uh, I was thinking about the questions that I wasn't able to ask uh, Chairman Powell at the news conference. Uh, And, you know, one, if I wanted to be a little bit humorous, would have been. You know, do you feel lucky or smart or some combination thereof? Because I do think it's some of all the above uh, good fortune in a sense. But, you know, there was so much done to try to keep the economy from literally going into a depression when, you know, you had a treasury secretary under the previous administration talking about the possibility that the unemployment rate could go to 25% Mm -hmm. in those early days of the pandemic. And so, you know, we had members of both parties and two different presidents who were quite astonishingly different, all really sort of bring out the heavy ammunition to assist the economy. And I think that that did provide more momentum than probably uh, we even now currently appreciate. There have been things done since that, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure and CHIPS Acts, you know, some of which is controversial and the impacts of those will be, you know, analyzed and debated for years to come. And of course, the Federal Reserve, while late to the party in the sense of raising rates to uh, try to bring inflation down, um, you have to say that you know all those things seem to have worked now one of the one of the I think comments that might have gone in a sense unnoticed at the news conference that Chairman Powell held was sort of along the lines of what you 're referencing there with recession and let me set that up by saying you know we survey economists every quarter at bank rate and beginning in the first quarter of twenty twenty two uh they were talking about a heightened risk of recession that now we've sort of been, you know, powering through for about two years. And Chairman Powell at the news conference said he thinks that right now there is not a recession. And what he's sort of referencing there is we had historically high uh, growth in the third quarter, 5.2 percent. That's sort of twice uh, plus uh, the typical average. Uh, but that growth rate is, is seen sort of waning a bit here in the current quarter. Uh, and then it remains to be seen what happens next year. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just been a remarkable turn of events. And, you know, that sets us up very nicely for 2024 in the sense that we go into the year with a number of things lining up in a positive way. And one of the things that's sort of a little more wonky but very noteworthy is that we've had an incredible decline in bond market yields that's coincided with the stock market rally. And people say, why should I care? It's because those yields uh, set the groundwork or essentially are the uh, things that correlate to... to, for example, lower mortgage rates. And so mm-hmm. we're seeing mortgage rates fall very sharply here. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's going to help the housing market if, if that could be sustained.
0: Well, that would be a big deal because I know it has been very tough to buy a house at those interest rates much higher than people have been used to uh, really in a generation because, you know, they used to be much higher and they came down really low for a while. So that, that's welcome news. And so we're talking about prices. The, there are still some things that, that are hitting the pocketbook pretty hard, many things that are hitting the pocketbook pretty hard. But with the latest inflation numbers that have come out recently, where do you still see the pressure points and where do you see mm-hmm. things have eased up in terms of prices?
7: Well, one thing I want to uh, level set here about uh, John is to uh, associate myself with the many Americans, the majority of Americans who uh, sort of uh, express that inflation has really been bad for their personal finances and uh, you know their households overall, and to bring sort of a data point to show that, maybe more than one, is that coming into the most recent Consumer Price Index report, prices were essentially up 20%. From mm-hmm. pre-pandemic levels, okay, we tend to look at the year-over-year, year, which recently has been, you know, closer to three percent. But if you think about the fact that you had twenty percent of your buying power destroyed, mm-hmm. you know, that would be associated re- with really typically sort of, you know, catastrophic economic developments. And so, uh, some we get some pushback from time to time from people when we're sort of zeroing in on the job market, where we say, well, the job market remains historically strong, and people are more. Sort of grounded in the in the inflation piece, and so you know they sort of either take issue with that or resent it. And I understand that because this inflation experience has been kind of a miserable one. But having said that, those inflation pressures have really begun to um, uh, moderate, and the expectation is that we'll see um, that continue uh, next year, perhaps even at a more favorable level than what had been expected. Uh, so all that I think is pretty good news uh, mm-hmm. and the most important thing, of course, uh, or or maybe you'll think of course, after I tell you, and that <laughs> is that the gasoline prices you know posted a six percent decline in November, and energy prices more broadly are down. and so if there's one thing that sets people off and really uh, weighs on consumer sentiment, uh, it's gasoline prices and yeah. so seeing them now at the lowest levels of the year, that's a big deal.
0: Yeah, here in where I live in Northern Virginia, uh, down below three dollars a gallon in a number of different places, which is always that's always kind of the marker for me is oh gas you know gas prices are good it's it's got a two in front of it so that's that's usually a good sign that that gas prices energy prices are are doing well so. We saw Americans also continuing to spend last month. The latest uh, consumer um, confidence numbers, uh, the the consumer spending numbers are are out. And again, showing that despite the inflation, despite the, the, the hit that it's taking on the pocketbook, the American people are still are still spending, aren't they?
7: They are. And I think, you know, the numbers we have so far, which are just through the month of November, end up being better than had been expected by this point. Uh, I think the gasoline price uh, part does help with that, uh, you know, where people can focus a little bit more on discretionary purchases than what is absolutely necessary. Uh, some of the areas where we're seeing strength, bars and restaurants, people are are going out and, and uh, eating and drinking. Uh, they are spending more on things like sporting goods and we're seeing uh, online sales robust, which, you know, that's continued to gain. A market share, uh, you know, let's say over the intermediate path. So uh, we'll see how December ends up. But you know, the National Retail Federation has predicted a year-over-year gain of somewhere between three and four percent, and we're tracking on the high side of that right now. I do worry that maybe uh, too many people are weighing or leaning forward on uh, credit card debt to finance some of these purchases when we have the average rate for uh, the best qualified new users of credit cards or those who would be getting applications or offers, Uh, those are roughly at uh, 20 and three quarters percent, meaning there's plenty of people that have much higher rates than that. And so the risk is you have a holiday shopping spree that then is followed by a New Year's debt hangover. And, uh, you know, we'd counsel against against that, uh, you know, Credit cards are great to use, but you really do need to pay pay those balances off before uh, that interest rate uh, charge hits.
0: Last thing for you here, Mark, in general, if you can just kind of broad, broad paint picture for us here, how would you describe the economy as we head into 2024?
7: it's proven much more resilient than we would have thought by now. It's in a much better place than we would have thought by now. Uh, The fact that we've had uh, yields in the bond market coming down, the expectation that the Federal Reserve will feel comfortable cutting rates in 2024, I think Ultimately, the phrase is we're in a better place than we thought we'd be by now. So uh, another reason to count our blessings.
0: Well, you can read everything that the very, very smart folks at Bankrate are saying about the economy over at Bankrate.com, and that's where you can find uh, all of uh, Mark Hamrick's work as well. Mark, thank you for coming back on the DC
7: Debrief. We'll talk to you again down the road. Much appreciated, John. Thanks so much. Good to talk to you.
0: All right, gang, now time for the closer this week with funding for Ukraine, Israel, a number of other top priorities hanging in the balance as the House prepared to leave for an extended Christmas break. Lawmakers spent time on Wednesday tackling milk. Now, one of the things we aim to do on this podcast is talk about some of the things happening in Congress that could actually matter to you in your everyday life and the life of your children. And not everything Congress is going to do has to be about geopolitics or impeachments and the like. Congress has to prioritize some of the smaller things here and there so they don't get lost in the shuffle. So there are, of course, some who look at changing school milk regulations as being inconsequential or small potatoes compared to some of the other things going on. And of course, maybe they are. Smaller potatoes. But that doesn't mean if if everything that was smaller got pushed to the side before the big stuff got figured out, none of the smaller stuff would ever get done. So agree or disagree with the policy here for sure. But sometimes the things that seem like little things actually matter to us regular folk. Right. The bill which garnered bipartisan support in a three thirty to ninety nine vote in the House would allow the national school lunch program to now serve whole milk in schools moving forward as in addition to the other options 2% 1% and low fat milk back in 2012 as part of michelle obama's push for healthier lunches in schools the obama administration's school lunch plan mandated that milk be uh, have a, have a fat content of no more than 1% If approved by the Senate and the measure then becomes law, kids would have the option of having either whole, reduced fat, low fat or fat free flavored milk and unflavored milk in school cafeterias. Now, in our house, we're a one percent, two percent family, although every now and then we splurge and we go we go whole milk and nothing, nothing better with a deep, rich chocolate brownie or a piece of chocolate cake than a tall, ice-cold glass of whole milk. There's just nothing better than that. Of course, you walk away and you feel completely bloated, but that's that's beside the point. Whole milk, it's good to have all the options. Uh, And this is something uh, that will be an option for your kids in school. Again, not a huge needle mover, but one of those things, one of those little things that Congress does that actually have an impact on your day-to-day life and the day-to-day life of your kids. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Again, please remember to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else it is you get your podcasts. Thank you all for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time right here on the DC Debrief.